1: Hello, I'm Justine Willis Toms. Today I'm hosting Karan Bajash, and he is the author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. Karan, I want to ask you Does our search for spiritual fulfillment have to take a back seat to our livelihood?
2: No, because I think the whole point of uh, spiritual growth should be that it reflects in your that you spiritualize your whole life, that it reflects in every activity in your day. Feel that sense of spirituality in every aspect of your living.
1: So, in doing that, it's not just working though. We, we need to also add some other increments to our life to support that spiritual fulfillment. Am I correct in that? Um, uh, yeah, so could you explain a little bit more? Uh, well, what I mean is, we might need some practices in order to help us let's say a meditation practice or in your case you teach yoga and you also teach meditation so these are also very helpful as we we do our work in the world as we earn a living but we try and also enhance that with these other practices yes
2: absolutely because uh, it's almost like uh, these practices fill the tank with fuel that you spend in the world so you need to like you know the world will uh, draw a lot from it and then you have to replenish it back again so i so i think i have a pretty in that way i do make sure that i even despite having a job and my novel and like having a family i do end up meditating at least half an hour in the morning half an hour in the night every day try to do yoga at least three days a week and and once a year take a longer week or 10 day retreat to really really replenish and then every few years take this whole year sabbatical. So, so I think, yeah, th- those practices are meant to keep the tank full for operating in the world.
1: And, and I know that y- you have pointed out that it, like about every four years, you take a year off. That's very difficult to arrange in this modern world. You're a householder, you have two children, you're married, you have a job. How do you arrange your life to be able to take a year off?
2: The good thing, just in here is that once you start building the muscle, uh, when I started this year of Principal really I started with a simple 10-day silent meditation retreat. The first time I did that 10-day silent meditation retreat, I saw that I was galvanized when I came back to my work. Like I was so silent, so much more at peace that I could see the effect of it. So then that one month became a year, uh, was the next sabbatical on my own. Then my wife came into the picture, and we both did it together. A little difficult to pull two careers together to do that, and then now we have kids, and we're diffi- Like it's it gets progressively harder, but you keep building the muscle of doing that and you can end up pulling it off each time
1: so you you save up for it like the, the way you spend your money you set aside for this year is that yes, part of
2: it it's part of it uh the good thing is that uh, like part of my sabbatical principles is uh, discomfort is a very important part of my sabbatical principle which means i feel like uh in your regular life, you get extremely comfortable and comfort is both physical, like, you know, living in your apartment, then also the attachment of like, I'm a vegetarian, I like organic food, I like green juices, and you surround yourself with all these beliefs and attachments about your own self. And part of my deconstruction is that I'm going to live in complete poverty in some sense, in complete discomfort. So so as a result of that choice, things don't cost much. So, for example, if I look at the last sabbatical, it costs $13,000 per person, one, three. Uh, for the whole year because like six seven months were spent in an ashram up in the himalayas where we were sleeping on floors and like uh, like taking cold showers every day the other half was also in an in a artist retreat in portugal so so a lot of the sabbatical doesn't cost money because like willful poverty and discomfort is very important to the sabbatical because it it helps me always connect back to what's important
1: so in other words you're not staying at five-star hotels no. You're, but but you're also rubbing shoulders with life in a in a very strategic way. Then,
2: exactly, because then once you come back, you'll never. I think what happens if you get too attached to your life is then you start talking about I should live in this school district and I should have this house and I. So then you're like once you get into that path, you keep building uh, like ideas about what you need. And those ideas keep expanding. And I think every few years, breaking those ideas completely and realizing that you are very happy sleeping on the floor of an ashram for months. Gives you the perspective back on what truly matters, and you don't like end up creating these like fantasies of what you need and complicate your life. Oh, that's so,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I I know that there, you're originally from India, and you've lived in the U.S. for for quite a while now. And I know in in your book, the Yoga of Max's Discontent, um, one of the things that you point out is um, traveling in India is uh, a practice of surrender, <laughs> I think, is the way you describe it. And, and that uh, that avoiding physical uh, comf- or discomfort in India when you're traveling in the way that you're talking about it, in that, like, not going first class, but, but really being with the rest of humanity there, it's quite a... A challenge in that way.
2: Yeah, it's quite a challenge, but each time it truly teaches you the depth of your own resilience. Like the first time when I landed in the ashram, for example, in the Himalayas, I was like, this is November in the mountains. How am I ever going to take a cold shower? And you take it and you're fine. And the next day, that is no longer a battle. And like with each day, you start realizing that you have higher and higher abilities to withstand, to be resilient. And also you start realizing how easily comfort becomes background noise. Uh, like you know like like after three days after a week you'll never think about the cold shower and the lack of power and the hard wood of the ashram floor where you're sleeping that all becomes part of your life and and that's beautiful because then you come back you, you're not constructing your life around comfort like you know like you just accept like you become a little bit like a monk and you accept what comes your way and that kind of liberates you to make very true creative choices things that are very good for you and your soul rather than like you know the, I guess the superfluous things. Yeah.
1: So you're saying like you are giving yourself an opportunity to deconstruct your life. Exactly. And then in that deconstruction, you get to start all over again.
2: Exactly. Absolutely. And and and, and we talked just about the physical discomfort. Part of it is also being a beginner again. Right, so it's not like that. I always go to an ashram and become a yoga teacher because that would be another form of kind of a little bit like attachment in a way. Here, the point is that I'm always. And that
1: becomes a habit. that becomes and a like habit, that. another habit,
2: you go from this to this. Like it's a it's a habit. The whole point is that you you it kind of start You always develop a beginner's mind. So if I think of the first sabbatical I wrote, and that was new for me because I'd never attempted any kind of writing. So to live in unfamiliar environments and write a novel was new activity. And then, so I'm always kind of like trying to approach it with the, how do I break everything down and become a beginner again? So for the next sabbatical with our kids, we want to uh, like go to Cambodia and work in an orphanage with our hands because we know that in New York, our life is very like um, easy in that way uh, because everything is done for us. Um, And then like we want to go to Cambodia and like really truly work with our hands as a family and that again so like I think that beginner's mind really keeps you always humble otherwise if you're working like me in a corporate environment or even writing your novels you achieve some success you start to swell up again like you know you start to keep you exaggerate your sense of what you can accomplish and this kind of completely breaks that down again and makes you a beginner again
1: I know that you're a teacher of meditation, and I, I just would like to end with your talking a little bit about meditation. And specifically, when we first learn to meditate, and we might experience some phenomena, something, you know, a blissful state or something that that we get attached to that we're surprised by or that we're, you know— it. Takes our breath away, so to speak, and and we get very excited about it. Uh, and and you use a metaphor that you you use in your book. It's about um, the painting of the moon is not the moon. So can you elaborate on that metaphor and, and what it means when we experience phenomena when we meditate?
2: Oh, yeah. If the painting of the moon is not the moon, I also make a point in the book that the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. The signpost to the way is not the way. Uh, so these are all the point being that these are just glimpses into what the ultimate state could feel like. And at best, you should use them as indicators that you're probably making some slight progress and not as a a state to get attached to and get, uh, like, any sense of, like, uh, finality from.
1: So, like, when, when we experience something like that, like, let's say, some blissful state... My own tendency is to then get attached to that, like okay, I hope I can experience that again, you know, and somehow it it just defeats the purpose in in some way
2: yes, absolutely, because the whole point is that you are a witness and observer, and you're training yourself to become like a more and more of a witness and observer of this of of eventually realizing that this constant state of the body and mind is uh, is always in fluctuation so the buddhists would say that it's always in fluctuation the hindus would say that it's prakriti as opposed to purusha purusha is divinity unchanging divinity and prakriti is that ever-changing constant world that we live in and like the whole purpose of life is to realize that you are the purusha so in every religious tradition in some form or the other they separate the perfect state from a state which is constantly in flux and your goal eventually of the spiritual practice is to be able to see that clearly That you're like the life that you're living is constantly in flux. It's always changing. Pleasure will go away and pain will go away and kind of connect to the unchanging permanent state. Rather,
1: It's something you call completeness. Yeah.
2: Again, the, the idea is that you reach a point here where the individual who's striving to reach somewhere, what you call the happy state or that, that individual disappears completely. So that whole act of like acquiring a state with meditation, be it happiness or peace or calm of mind, that whole construct vanishes completely because the individual who strives for that state no longer exists and becomes the the individual lump of salt, as they say, dissolves into the ocean completely. The wave becomes the ocean and there's no wave left seeking something at all. So that's the objective of this whole exercise. It was also like kind of like the novel it was very, very hard to write the ending of this novel because any f- piece of fiction or is built on an individual trying to accomplish a goal and like facing conflict in accomplishing the goal and in what happens in the novel is that the individual is gone completely. So it was very hard to capture it in words because it's a very, like, like it's a beautiful thing of enlightenment as they say, it neither exists nor it doesn't exist. It's neither this nor it's that. So you can't, it's almost neti neti inexpressible. <laughs> so it was very hard to express that inexpressible in words, which I, is I, a I, finite medium.
1: I think you <laughs> yeah. did it very well though. I, so. I loved and I, I will encourage our listeners to, to read the novel. I loved the ending because i think you really brought it together in in that way that that zen saying chop wood carry yeah. water you know we we do that before enlightenment and we do that after enlightenment and yeah. but there is something shifted yeah. in us that is very essential and yeah. that is at one with the energy of the universe exactly <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I want to thank you so much, uh, Karan, for being with us today on the New Dimensions Cafe. A
2: real, real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I've been here with Karan Bajash, and he is the author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, karanbajash.com And he spells his name K-A-R-A-N-B-A-J-A-J. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine willis toms I want to thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe, and please do join us again.
0: You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org.